This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, 6 a.m. on Tuesday, the 13th of September. Good morning. You are listening to The Morning Run. I'm Shazana Mokhtar together with Philip C. and Wong Xiaoning. Good morning. Pseudo hump day. Pseudo hump day. Hump day is tomorrow, Philip. You're a day Ah, early. It doesn't matter. It's It's a four-day work week. It's only Tuesday. Today is my Wednesday. In your mind. Today is my Wednesday. Understood, understood. (laughs) Given the short week, because we will be celebrating Malaysia Day on Friday, the 16th of September. I love it, Phil. I love it that you're always anticipating the good things ahead. I know, but I had a great morning. One of my colleagues, Jensen, made a wonderful cup of coffee for me this morning. He did? He didn't make one for us. I know. Are you jealous? Yeah, are you the favourite? I am the favourite. Although I did out him yesterday with all his Facebook postings, (laughs) if you remember you only has one expression, right? Yes. I don't know, Phil. I'd be wary if I were you. If he made you that coffee, I'm not sure what we know. <laughs> I saw him personally make it. Although you're right, actually, because I didn't see the first part when there he was go. making it through the espresso machine. I'm just well, saying. Whatever it is, uh, the effects should not be felt until 10 a.m., please. <laughs> That's when our show ends and our colleagues at Enterprise take over. And in the meantime, we've got a lot of interesting conversations lined up this morning, beginning with 7.15. The question we're asking is, would a bridge between Malacca and Sumatra bring economic benefits or is it more likely to become another white elephant? We're going to get reactions to the proposal from economist Dr. Timothy Wong of the National University of Singapore. And at 7 the EU faces a bitterly cold winter if it is unable to address its ongoing energy crisis. We discuss the proposals on the table and political implications with analyst Dr. Frederick Klein of the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies. Then at 7.45, with the monsoon season approaching, what should the government be doing to prevent or mitigate flooding? Because we all can remember what it was like in December and January this year, and we saw pictures of it happening in Klang and Shah Alam. So we'll ask Charlie Ko of Urban Metri for her policy recommendations. We're going to have all this and more today on The Morning Run, so stay with us, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, that was Toto with Rosanna. You are listening to The Morning Run 608 in the morning on Tuesday, the 13th of September. I'm Shazana Mokdar with Wong Xiaoning and Philip C. Now, for all Elon Musk's outsized influence in the corporate and social media spheres, there's one area in which he arguably falls way behind the average, and definitely behind his arch-rival Jeff Bezos. Now, the Wall Street Journal has a piece looking at the Jeff Bezos effect. Phil, would you like to walk us through this story? (laughs) I don't really want to, but I mean, this story, I think, struck a chord to many of us over the weekend because it really shows about how CEOs over a period of time, especially led by Jeff Bezos, with their washboard apps and their biceps, right? Bulging biceps, right? Coming through as he parades through the plains of the Americas. When did Jeff Bezos develop washboard abs? You know, like, how did that come about? I know. I don't know. He went from like geeky nerd to like super... The founder of an online bookstore to this... It was transformational person. in my well, view. Well, his life has also changed, right? I mean, he, he... I'm not sure, did he get remarried? But he had another girlfriend or something and then he just went on this fitness binge and now he looks... 
Super buff. Super buff. Super Almost buff, to the point I, of like a Bond villain buff. Yeah, he looks pretty Bond villainy, I have to say. Do you think this came about after he relinquished his CEO role at... No, no. No, no, was, no I think it was, it was before. Before. Okay. before. Yeah. But I think this article... Okay, I'll confess. I picked it, right? And yes. I was... When Being I looked, shallow as usual. Yes, yes. I'm very shallow. I picked it because I thought, oh, by golly, are we now setting standards in terms of what CEOs should be like? What then does this mean for mere mortals like me, right? Mm. Lazy mere mortals Oh, you can like never me. be a CEO then, Shawnee. No, you have I... no chance. You have no chance in hell to become uh, a CEO. Thank you very much because I have what, Although no Although you wash... wake up at three in the morning and like do like a one hour skit thing or whatever you do, it's you have no training. chance. training. Oh, because I have no washboard apps. Yeah, you have no washboard How apps. do you know? You've never seen my apps, but never mind. <laughs> Oh, you well. I, my arms aren't that bad for a forty-eight-year-old woman. But yes. the point is, no. These I think uh, set unrealistic targets, and you know what? It just personifies them becoming these superhero CEOs, right? That's what they want. They they've always probably been perfectionists, super achievers, and now they've just gone to another realm, which is fitness. So the question in my mind is: what, Does the title or the responsibility of CEO attract a certain kind of individual yes. or personality that desires all these things? Right, that desires this quest for perfection, and perfection manifests in many, many ways. Right, its physical form and such. So that for me is the bigger question. And you know, I, I always reflect and laugh quite hilariously because over the weekend as I drive, I saw all these kind of CEOs with their lycra and bicycles go around the town. You know, trying to basically be fit on Saturday. Today because perhaps this desire for control, this desire for being able to control your environment is perhaps why they, they, they reflect that way. I think it's uh, it's just part and parcel of them going, you know, okay, let me put it this way. In the past, you used to have bragging rights when you had the nicest watch, the mm. most expensive car, right? The nicest house, going on expensive holidays. Now, it's all done and dusted, right? Because if you're in the billionaire status, you can achieve all those things like that, like with the click of your fingers. But if you're going to achieve the perfect body, that shows endurance, that shows commitment, that shows discipline. You can, to some level, you can buy it, but you can't buy it all the way because you really need to put in the hours. So these CEOs, right, are saying, look, I'm perfect. I can work long hours and I can squeeze this work out in because I am just perfection. I will get up at three to do this. So, I have two, so it's bragging rights, yeah, so right? Yeah, so I have two big problems with it. Firstly, who defines perfection? Yeah, Honestly, exactly. frankly. And after you achieve this so-called perfection, what next? What next after that? I mean, my issue with, I guess, this kind of perception that's coming up is just how narrow the focus is, because these are obviously white male CEOs. And I think it omits the whole gamut of other people who could also become CEOs. And I just feel like, I don't know, it, it, it doesn't sit well with me when there are articles in the Wall Street Journal focusing on these elements, you know? Yeah. I actually, think- I think to be fair to this article, they don't actually propagate it or suggest that it's fantastic behavior. If you read it between the lines, uh, it does kind of hint that, you know, these people are a bit... Mm, are they overdoing it? Is this achieving unrealistic expectations? And it, they mention a lot. The, I see the word bragging many times. So I'm not. I don't think the article is saying, "Oh, everybody who's a CEO, go out and achieve this physical yeah, so perfection." I, I, I think the issue here is that the, the 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 paper tries to you know make sure it's caveated well. But there are people who are going to interpret it. They're going to look at it and say, "Look, I aspire to that." But this and is I something think that's we the see with issue, right? Instagram stars. That? We see that exactly. also on social yeah. media. We see 
see it with actresses. Nicole Kidman came out with a picture of herself at 50 with incredibly buff arms as well. And then what do I think as a woman? Can I achieve this? No. I think so. And I think, but this is where it's not expanded beyond just celebrity. You know, and this I think the being being the CEO become a celebrity. I think well, that's also they are. the bigger issue. They have become right. Everybody knows Jeff Bezos' name. Everybody know who's Mark Zuckerberg is. And I think that's the bigger problem. You know, you're meant to serve an institution or corporate and not to raise your own personal profile. That's where I have a bit of an issue sometimes, and I and it sits very uncomfortably with me, right? About people wanting to basically elevate their own personality in an organization when they are meant to be hired in service of the organization. That's where I have a big issue with. Interesting. I mean, I think yesterday we were discussing about Kim Kardashian and how she's taking the helm of a private equity firm and whether her celebrity is an asset to the company. So I think we're going to be grappling with this issue a lot more in the future. It's not going to go away. Um, In the meantime, you know, tell us what you think. What do you think of the Jeff Bezos effect? Uh, Should... What do you make of CEOs that uh, give this perfection persona? You know, you can WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. It's 6.14 in the morning. We're heading into some messages. We'll come back with the discussion on the people making cities more resilient. Stay tuned. BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, that was Sometimes by Ash. You are listening to The Morning Run 619 on Tuesday, the 13th of September. I'm Shazana with Philip and Xiaoning. Now, as weather patterns become more erratic as a result of climate change, ensuring operational resilience has become a priority agenda for governments and local authorities. So enter the role of the Chief Resilience Officer. In concrete terms, a resilience manager is in charge of implementing plans focused on various, very specific aspects related to climate change. Uh, We have the example of the chief heat officer in Athens, um, and other cities have also appointed similar roles for people to really focus on these specific uh, city management issues. I don't know, what do you think of this? Uh, this, um, Is this an example of new career paths that emerge with the needs of the day? And is it really needed? Should this be something that we look into perhaps here? It's the same, in my view, the same strain as what we call a chief sustainability officer in many corporate organizations. And I've I've heard, you know, for many organizations that they hope that the roles like these become transient, that eventually you want all these functions to be embedded into the organization, right, in the midterm, long term. So I hope these are ad hoc roles because you want them all, you know, put and reflected into the country, organization and function. But I think the problem now is that we are in this environment where you're seeing so much volatility and that's why there's a call for resilience. And as you said, right in Athens, they just appointed a chief heat officer simply because, you know, uh, heat waves are happening all across Greece. And just reflecting about what's, what's happening here in Malaysia, where we're anticipating massive floods coming in November, December, whether we need a chief flooding officer as well here, right, to manage and mitigate all these climate crises that are going to affect our communities. Actually, I did a bit of digging um, because I had never heard of this title mm. before, right? Um, and the first time I see it being mentioned, and I could be wrong, is in 2014. And it's an article by the Rockefeller Foundation. So it's actually really nothing new, or at least it yeah. was is is something that has been in the background. And it's, uh, you know, there are chief resilient officers in certain cities. For example, in Byblos, Lebanon, Christchurch, New Zealand, Medellin, Colombia, San Francisco also has one. But what's amazing is that fast forward eight years later, right, to 2022, and it seems like we need this officer more than ever because little attention has been paid to 
to the necessity of this role in the last eight years. And what's interesting, because the Rockefeller says why it is important to have this role, is it because it brings, it has a way of creating channels to bring together a wide array of stakeholders to talk about and to understand what the city's challenges are. And this is important for me, to build support for individual initiatives and also for initiatives between government and private sector. Yeah, I think I think this is a very interesting point. You gave the example about it being quite a, not a new role. Like Christchurch and San Fran, I totally get it because, you know, they're so prone to earthquakes. Yes, disasters do, can disasters happen Disasters are happening moment, right? so often there that they were no, they had no choice but to build resilience into the city. But now what you're seeing here is that we're now discussing beyond earthquakes and all these natural disasters, but really climate-related issues that actually could have been mitigated for to a certain extent. I suppose so. I, I mean, resilience means different things to different yes. cities, right? So as you mentioned, Christchurch, San Francisco, earthquakes were what they needed to build resilience. They knew about that. But because climate change is bringing all these new extreme weather patterns. So yes, KL was known for flooding for sure. It, it's something that has happened yearly, but the severity of it has been, like you said, has been magnified. And so um, more attention should be paid to it. Whether this is the role of of a chief resilience officer or whether it should already be, you know, existing people in the organization should also be paying attention to this. You don't have to create a whole new separate role to be looking at this. But I get that doing so really puts focus on that particular point. And I think this to build on what Shawning is saying, the focus, I guess, of the role is that it brings different parties together, especially on something that's cross-cutting in nature. And as you say, right, if you need to bring private sector and all that, if you need to get cross-functional departments, Mm. that's, I think, quite important. And I guess I'm reflecting now, that's why many people in Malaysia have these roles at the Prime Minister's office mm. because they think that because it's at the PMO, you can kind of get cross-functional support across different ministries. Now, the other thing um, that I found interesting in another article about what a chief resilience officer should do, and this is the other part of it, right, is when a disaster strikes, because sometimes it just does, right? You yeah. can't stop an earthquake. Then as a chief resilient officer, the next stage is actually to ensure that the city bounces back and growth resumes. Mm. So it's not just about disaster prevention, but it's looking forward recovery, in recovery which is really important. I think that's a very, very important point because we cannot avoid all these disasters. I mean, even when you talk about the climate change issue happening here... We're going to have natural disasters, climate-related challenges happening. How fast does the city bounce back? I think it's core to making this role really work. It reminds me of that breakfast grill that you had not too long ago, uh, Phil, with um, the executive director of UN Habitat as as well as um, the program director of Think City, where you were talking about um, how... Cities require are based on their people, right? The yes. root of it is people their people. Centric cities. And people-centric cities would require strong leadership. So there is an interconnection between what happens on the ground and what happens at the Most top. Definitely. Um, so yeah, perhaps uh, the chief resilience officer is something that uh, DBKL should what be should looking have, at. Oh, well, the question here is, should it happen at the city level? Should it happen at the state level? Or should it happen at the governmental level? Can that I say I th- all levels? <laughs> <laughs> we should start somewhere first, I suspect. But I think that's one of the biggest issues. But I think because climate change is such a global issue, we're going to have a chat later with Charlie Coe about flooding infrastructure, right? We are. Where are we going to... Put, take action now. Where should the action take place now first? Tell us what you think. Uh, what do you make of the role of the Chief Resilience Officer? Is this needed more than ever? Uh, you can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio 625 in the morning. We're heading into the 6.30am news bulletin. We'll come back after that with a look at what's making headlines around the world. Meanwhile, here's Moondance by Van Morrison to take you to the news. BFM 89.9. 
BFM 89.9. Good morning. You are listening to The Morning Run. That was Rosebud by U.S. Girls. Uh, and it's 6.40 in the morning on a Thursday. No, Tuesday. Sorry, it's my time travel. The time traveler in me again going back and forth. It is Tuesday, the 13th of September. And it is that time of morning where we take a look at what's making headlines around the world. Uh, Phil, you've got some scintillating news for scintillating us. Scintillating for sure, but hardly earth-shattering. Because uh, Elon Musk's ex-girlfriend auctions his mementos from college. And they prove to be very popular. So Jennifer Gwynn, who dated the world's richest men when they were both studying at the University of Pennsylvania, has been auctioning a cashier of photos and other memorabilia on a Boston-based platform RR Auction. Shaz, shouting, check this out. A birthday card signed Love Elon was edging north of $10,000. Wow. You've why did he leave her? Why did she leave him? I don't know. Who cares, man? I, I want that. I want to know why. Because otherwise, why is she auctioning all this stuff? Well, to make money, of course. You know, mm. Sh- Shawning, you would have made it when your ex-boyfriend's auction off your love letters. Uh, firstly, I'm not famous. Nobody you wants made to... it if you achieve that. Nobody wants to read my love letters. <laughs> and likewise, his love letters to me back and forth, okay? I feel like that's a great um, argument in favour of keeping letter writing alive because you never know if yes. it will still stay valuable. I mean, can you sell your WhatsApps between your, your partners? Emails. I guess you could do an NFT. Yeah, what about all <laughs> my WhatsApps? Because that's how people... Yeah. communicate, right? So the, the WhatsApp will be like a long series is of conversations. Is it a work of art? Is your WhatsApp a work of art? I think so. It's That's poetry. It's poetry. Poetry in motion. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> when I write it, it's poetry. Poetry in digital motion it is. Okay. Alright, moving on to other stories uh, that have perhaps more world uh, world more, bearing. More relevance. Yes. yes. Can I start with Indonesia for a change? Let's start with Asia. And this is an article in the Singapore Straits Times and it's really about how the recent fuel price hike has impacted impacted daily lives there. So uh, what we've seen is actually street protests happening across Indonesia. So the the price hike, they're in a similar position like us. They Mm. need it, right? Because this price hike on September 3rd has saved Indonesia about 9.5 billion Singapore dollars, okay? Which is about 30 plus million uh, billion ringgit. Our bill is north of 80, close to 80. So I think they are in a similar position. But what maybe this is a percursor of what can happen if you suddenly raise it. And that there are street protests happening across Indonesia. And I've seen pictures of it, right, where they literally chased a deputy minister's convoy. So this is a very interesting point because if you reflect about a month ago, we were going through Indonesia's Indonesia's budget and, you know, many analysts were praising its conservatism, its fiscal prudence about how Jokowi, even though he was running for an election next year, decided to take a very conservative stance, right, and basically improve his fiscal discipline. But as you said rightfully, Shaoning, the repercussions of doing it too fast or too mm. tightly has severe political repercussions and Be- I think a lesson learned here as well. Because the rise was about 32%. Okay. Yeah. So it's a lot, right? So it's pretty steep. So I think the point is yes, subsidies need to be removed. I think there's no doubt about it, right? It's mm. not a fair system. It doesn't work well for our economy. But then what are the lessons we can learn from Indonesia in terms of implementing it in the least painful manner? Because you cannot just remove the subsidies, you still need to help the most vulnerable households. 
Absolutely. And I think we can also learn the lessons of history where we've seen fuel hikes, price fuel hikes have been followed by mass protests, not just in Indonesia that we're seeing recently, but we saw it during the Arab Spring. We saw it in Kazakhstan not too long ago. Um, I mean, these are very emotive issues for people. Um, So any leader would really need to take note on this. And they are not emerging market issues now. I think that's one of the big distinctions we are seeing now. It's happening all around the world. You talk about Europe especially, Mm. where they're going through this energy crunch. So many worries about that. The debate is really how are they going to sort that out? And we're going to talk about this at 7.30, right? When we speak to Dr. Frederick Klim about this from the NUS in terms of how Europe is going to adapt to the energy crisis and the fact that Russia has literally turned off the taps when it comes to gas. And building on that story, right, we come back to the Russian-Ukraine crisis. We've seen Ukrainian forces really advance extremely fast and recapturing territory. I think they are now only just 50 kilometers south of the Russian border. It really seems that they're making great progress. Will they go back to their February 23rd border line Mm. as soon as possible? Will it be done by end of this year or even as early as next month? That's where the Financial Times actually uh, reports an interview with a Pentagon official from the U.S., warning people not to be overly optimistic with regards to this war in Ukraine. So their point is that Ukraine still faces a very tough fight and that, you know, the Ukrainian counter-offensive, which although was surprising, uh, the rapid advances had not yet fundamentally changed the near-term outlook on the battleground. That's their point. Mm. Okay, so I think the war is going to grind slowly along the way. The question is, will this force Russia to take on even more military aggression? I think that is the concern there. And they just recently bombed power plants in the country. 6.46 in the morning. We are heading into some messages. We'll come back with a look at what's making headlines in our local newspapers and portals. Stay tuned. BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, that was Aretha Franklin with Baby I Love You. It's 6.49 in the morning on Tuesday the 13th of September. We are The Morning Run. I'm Shazana with Shaoning and Philip. Now we're taking a look at what's making headlines in our local newspapers and portals. Uh, what do you have on the front pages of the papers that you're holding, Phil? Well, I'm just reading the style. I think what struck me and you know, is that there's a lot of news coverage about planning ahead for this incoming monsoon season where they're going to expect a deluge, they're going to expect heavy rains take take place as a result of La Nina coming through. And so the star headline planning on staying dry, even if you look into the following pages, there really is a lot of coverage about everybody getting ready for the deluge and even Prime Minister saying prepare early for the floods, the government is getting ready for it to lash six states and also 10 months on, flood trauma won't ebb close to home here in KL Klang Valley. So I think everybody has this ominent, you know, this sense you know, of it coming very soon and getting needing to be prepared ahead of schedule. So in some ways, it is um, learning from what happened uh, last year yeah. in that you're, the government is telegraphing very early to yes. the public um, that we should be prepared for these monsoons. Uh, the actual preparedness is also another matter, I suppose, and, and long term as well. Uh, mm. What you're doing beyond just warning people, how are you mitigating those effects down the line? We'll have more discussions on that uh, later on in the show with Charlie Ko of Urban Metri. Uh, but in the meantime, 
meantime, other headlines. Um, I believe that uh, most of the papers and probably online news portals are covering the uh, revocation of titles um, from Datuk Sri Najib Raza and his wife, Datin Sri Rosma Mansur. Yeah, that's a very interesting one, isn't it? Because Negri Simbalang revoked his title, I think, 2018 earlier. earlier. Mm. So I think what is remaining, I think, is Pahang still. There's a lot of other states <laughs> who, other state have still, who he still has titles from. I see. But it's very interesting telling that actually Selangor Sultan has proceeded to revoke his titles. And I guess this is also a very uh, interesting development coming through. This comes in tandem with the stories about him going to H Hospital Kuala Lumpur mm. for his elective surgery, according to our uh, health DG, right? In tandem, you hear stories also that uh, our former Prime Minister is not feeling well, he's got high blood pressure. At the same time, his uh, daughter is saying that he's got stomach ulcers. Although, although I think all this is all a bit confusing and conflicting in my view, right? One is saying it's just elective surgeries. Another side saying that his, his situation is very you know, serious per se. But at the same time, our Prime Minister, Dr. Sri Ismail Sabri, this is reported in the Malay Mail, has ordered the Ministry of Health to give the best treatment to Dr. Sri Najib Razak following claims of the latter's deteriorating health. Um, and that's why I'm stuck. I'm, I'm struck why, because when you compare that to what the health DG said, mm. who said he went for an elective surgery in which then advisors say he could be discharged immediately, the tone of that comment doesn't sit well with what you were saying just now, shouting that the situation seems very dire, seems very stark and contrasting. So a lot of mixed messages, uh, a lot of he said, she said, they said, um, yeah. uh, you know, kind of blurring the picture. Uh, no doubt this will generate a lot of attention because this is the former Prime Minister that we're talking about. Uh, I do hope, I do believe that um, all prisoners and everyone in custody should get uh, medical attention that they need. Um, I, I wish that other issues or other prisoners or people in custody would also get the attention that our former Prime Minister is getting. Uh, this week we, there was a 20th uh, death in custody that was reported. Um, I do feel that the authorities should be looking into that as well. Yes, for sure. And now, turning our attention to economics, this is reported in the Malaysian Insight. I also see in the Singapore Straits Times, actually, uh, where our finance minister, Tunku Zafro, says that Malaysia's 2022 GDP growth may surpass 5.3 to 6.3 mm. estimate. Uh, and this is despite the fact that there's a weaker global economy as well as the rising US dollar. So watch out for the new forecast that will be announced on October 7th. Which is budget day. Which is budget day. <laughs> uh, not surprising because we've had a conversation with the economist yes. from UOB Bank, Julia Go. Her own in-house forecast is, I do believe it's 6.8 or 6.5, something high. like that. It was definitely higher than what the uh, government forecasts are. Yes. Yeah. So I, I think that's what's because the first the first half of the year has been better than expected. That's right. I think they were saying second quarter numbers very good, right? Exceeded expectations at 9%. Many are also forecasting the quarter three to be very good. But as you said, the challenge is next year, isn't it? 2023. That's right. Whether we can still maintain that momentum, whether that growth can continue on till next year. Uh, I think if you look at trying to get the Bloomberg numbers out, if I look at the consensus, right, in terms of economics, for this year, we're looking at a consensus of 6.8%. And then next year, we see a dip of 4.5%. Meanwhile, other things that I want to highlight is CPI, Consumer Price Inflation uh, Index, it is still 3.1%. It, it doesn't seem to be reflected in the price of, 
of goods, unfortunately. And there's a little short article in the CEO Morning Brief about food supply chain approach, alternative imported food sources to be reviewed, says Anwar. And that's on behalf of his job as chairman of, remember this, the Special Task Force on Jihad Against Inflation. I almost forgot about them. When you say Anwar, you mean Tan Sri Anwar yes, Musa sorry, Anwar and Musa. Datuk Sri Anwar Ibrahim. Sorry, There's yes. so many Anwar. I should be clear about that. Um, yeah, remember them? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's just a fleeting moment there just now. But he did also come out in the newspapers over the weekend, right, that they don't follow necessarily the OPR rate hikes as a guiding principle for how they need to make decisions as well. Yeah, and he also said it's not appropriate to accuse the task force on jihad against inflation of failing in its job because of an increase in the overnight policy rate. Yes, it's not your job to manage the OPR. That's Bank Negara's job. Yes. Let's keep those lines very <laughs> clearly defined. Indeed, indeed. We're coming up to 6.56 in the morning. We're heading into the 7am news bulletin and after that we'll check out how global markets closed overnight. Taking you to the news is Bill Withers with Use Me, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.